Good evening. I'm Sandra Davidson. I'm joined tonight with Baxter Miller and Ryan Stansel, my colleagues at Bitten Grain, a new digital publication about the state of North Carolina. Hey. Hi. We are excited to announce a new collaboration with Coastal Voices, an oral history project of the Core Sound Museum about the maritime heritage of the Outer Banks and Downeast region of coastal North Carolina in Bitten Grain, our publication. We'll be producing the Coastal Voices radio show every month, and we're excited to bring you 2016's first episode of Coastal Voices right here on Radio Hatteras. Thanks for having us. We're going to begin our series this year by profiling the Albatross, one of Hatteras Village's most iconic and storied boats. She was designed by Ernold Foster and built in Marshallburg by Willis and Sons Boatyard around 1937, and she's Hatteras Island's earliest charter fishing boat. We'll explore her story from two perspectives. First, through the voice of the late Captain Ernold Foster, the boat's proud owner, and then through his son, Captain Ernie Foster, who's now at the helm of the family charter fishing business. So before we begin, Ryan, why don't you give us a little bit of background about the charter fishing industry in Hatteras? Well, before the Albatross, commercial fishermen in Hatteras had dabbled with taking groups of sportsmen out in search of big game fish. By most accounts, 1933 was the first documented unsuccessful attempt to catch a marlin, one of the most prized offshore game fish. For commercial fishermen, taking out fishing parties took a back seat to commercial harvesting. The whole idea of chartering as a primary source of income was almost unheard of in the region. But Ernold Foster and his legendary albatross fleet ushered in what would become the modern-day offshore charter fishing industry. The magic of a boat is about the magic of a man's relationship to the sea. And charter fishing in some way depends on this mysterious relationship. The industry in and of itself is built on the pool of the ocean, on man's instinct to fish and man's desire to escape. It's something Ernie Foster, Ernold's son, knows a thing or two about. What's that that saying? And you see, uh, a bad day of fishing is better than a good day at work. Pop sociology pop psychology answers, I guess. I don't know. To have been a school counselor, I, I, I'm not real politically correct. I, I, I happen to think that there are a lot of primal urges than folks have. And I think that hunter-gatherer is not just a concept. And there is something, and this is for everyone, it isn't just guys, though many more males and females get moved by the experience. It stirs something very primal when you are literally in contact with that live creature. When you are in a city and everything revolves around a controlled environment, getting been in a position where you're a little bit on the edge, where you know that you're in contact with something that is grander than you or more wild than you or stronger than you and that you have a little bit of temporary mastery of it it's uh, it's it's very affirming
Arnold Foster, founder of the Albatross fleet, built the island's industry on this notion. Born in January of 1910 in Hatteras Village to a large family, Arnold grew up during a time when his commute to school depended on the tide, when people traveled from one village to another by horse, and when mail was the only way to communicate with folks off the island, and even that arrived by boat. His father was a commercial fisherman, a Menhaden captain to be precise. His family spent summers in Hatteras and Menhaden season in Beaufort or Southport, and Arnold quit school when he was in the ninth grade. At 18, Arnold borrowed $25 and purchased a one-way ticket on a steamer from Norfolk, Virginia to New York, where he joined the Coast Guard and later worked at a sheet metal company. After five years of living away, Arnold decided it was time to come home. Hatteras was a place of refuge, a place that offered him a meal, a warm bed, and his family, necessities hard to come by for many men his age during the Great Depression. The prospect of fishing offered Arnold hope for a decent living, but as fate would have it, it wouldn't be from commercial fishing. When he got home from New York, Arnold started searching for the perfect boat builder. After visiting numerous boathouses, he settled on a Mr. Miller of Willis and Sons Boatyard in Marshallburg, who began building the Albatross. With only a little money to his name, Arnold bought a $15 Buick car and stripped her engine to equip the boat. He borrowed $75 from the bank for her shaft. Completed in 1937, the Albatross was originally part commercial, part sport fishing boat. Her hybrid design made her suitable for hauling loads of commercial fish, but also excelled as a big game fishing boat when she was outfitted with fighting chairs and outriggers. The Albatross hosted her first charter group in 1937. And after receiving nationwide media attention, word spread like wildfire up and down the East Coast. She began attracting adventurers who were willing to pay good money to get out on the water and fish. Just $25 a day back then. A bout of pneumonia ultimately prevented Arnold from working the often harsh, cold, and damp conditions commercial watermen face. So he doubled down on charter fishing, or party fishing as he liked to call it, and less than a decade later, he had transitioned entirely to charter fishing. Here's Arnold talking about the early years in a 1988 interview with Amy Glass for the Southern Oral History Program at UNC. I told I could come home, I could take care of myself, I could live a while. But if I try to make all the money in the world, so you won't enjoy it. So that's what I did. I come on, and I couldn't face commercial fish in the cold and dampness like I used to. So I relaxed and decided I'd just try to take care of my party fish in the summer so we could make it through the winter. So I come home. Which best thing ever happened for me? I come home and got going, and I finally got my boat and got wrapped up in fish and canning parties. First summer, I got I finally got rigged up. I had four trips to the Gulf Stream, which was a hundred dollars. In the first summer, I fished. I didn't have no chairs. I, I, people sat on fish boxes. Uh-huh. That's why they sat on wealthy people. I didn't care. Well, then the people who carried fish had money. People. Where were they from? Well, the first part I carried was from, from North of Virginia Beach. That's the first part I carried Gulf Stream, and it kept growing. And then I got contact with some outdoor writers, Pittsburgh Press, Washington, D.C., went outdoor, and uh, different places in Ohio. Well, one guy, outdoor writer for the New York World Telegram, about 20, 25 would come at a time, and that's how, how it all started. So then 
outdoors writers. There were people who wrote about outdoors. outdoors. Uh, there were outdoors sport columns, see? So you couldn't buy that kind of advertisement. And that's what got me going in there. Mm -hmm. And the more I went out there, the more I got enthused into it. Someone said, well, my father said, why don't you quit messing with it? And the other man said, you're crazy. But I was doing something I enjoyed. I wanted to go. Uh -huh. And of course, I know it wasn't much money than $25 a day, mm -hmm. but it was a lot then to me because I just hadn't been making that kind of money. But it, it wasn't the money altogether. I was so wrapped up in it. And then my book got a lot of recognition all over the country. She's very well known to Albatross. Now, did you design the book? Well, pretty much, I didn't put nothing on paper. Uh -huh. But see, there used to be boat builders you had to hatch a family of stairs with natural born boat builders. Okay, how'd you hear about these boat builders? Well, I, I grew up down there, knowing the most older men around Moorhead and in places. Uh-huh. And I went to different yards. I had two or three yards of Harkins Island. Mm -hmm. And the Moorhead had two, a couple of yards. I went to all of them. Mm -hmm. well, I ended up going back to Marshallburg. Yeah, I got my lumber. Some of them come from Washington, my framing come from Washington, that cost me three and a half cents a foot. And I went up to Buffalo, Man's Harbor, got my plank in, that cost me four and a half cents a foot. That's what my lumber cost me. And the man who built, and then I, the man was going to build it in a house, he had a good summer of fishing, so he chased the bluefish all the way up Ocean City, up the coast. Mm -hmm. Even another boat, they, they liked to party, drinking and carrying on, they were having a lot of fun, and then he wouldn't build my boat which I'm happy you didn't, because I got a boy I like better. And I tied my lumber down to Marshallburg. I went to four or five different yards, and a man charged me the most when one built my boat. Of course, I liked his boats better than the work he'd done. Uh -huh. So that's why I had my boat built in Marshallburg, because he, I told him what I wanted, he didn't want to build my boat the way I wanted it. He said, I, I, I never built one. Well, if I ruin the lumber, I said, well, it's my lumber. If you ruin her, I'm to blame for it, not you. So he built her. And Mr. Miller built her. He lied me $100 for my lumber. He furnished the rest of my two. He built my boat. Mm -hmm. Then I didn't have enough money to fix her. I told her bring her home. I didn't, I didn't have enough money to pay him for it. I wanted a friend of mine, the same guy in New York, he got in tough luck, so I lent him money, and then I went and get my boat. I didn't have enough money. So the man said, well, I trust you. So I brought my boat home, and that's where it all started. And I had a time getting my boat, and then when I went to fix it up, I, there wasn't no money around, so I went to the bank board and said me five dollars to put a shaft on my boat, and I bought a Buick automobile for $15 to get the engine out of it. Man said, drive it home. I said, I don't want the car. I just want the engine. So I, he took the engine. I brought the engine home. That's what I put in my boat. And I didn't have no money. I bought a, I bought a gas tank truck. My boat. I bought a steering wheel. <laughs> and, I, and the man, he had my friend. He said, Well, I'll do the work for you. And pay me when you make it. So that's how I started out with the albatross. With, with nothing.
That was Ernold Foster of Hatteras Island reflecting on his boat, the Albatross. Certainly a boat and an idea worth fighting for, which he did on several occasions. In 1942, the government drafted Ernold and took his boat for their own use. They needed it for harbor patrol. This is the story of how he got it back. 42, I, they come and dash me in the service. Oh. Then it wasn't satisfied, I'd come and take my boat. Who did? The government. The government seized my boat, went off with her. The commanders tried to make me sign paper, loose papers. I wouldn't sign, so you got to. I only got to do one thing. I wouldn't sign a paper. Well, they, they, they got on me. They called them, going to make me sign it. I, ain't going, I don't have to. I'm not going to. I was in the service. Then I went to the captain. I get my boat back out of service. He found the He says, we sent you papers. We, we, we got your boat, you sold it. I said, I showed me why you paid me. They sent me letters, went to a sign, I burned them. Nobody didn't get them, I, I burned them, put them in the stove till they went up the chimney. And he got mad, the captain did in his office. And I, so I got mad too, I was just a sailor, but I got all the time. I said, Captain, as big a man you are, I left his office. About two weeks, I'll call back. I come on with a letter to the congressman and lawyer up in Washington, a good friend of mine. And I, I'll call back and say, my skipper on the boat says, you're going to be a court martial. I said, I don't care. This is my personal business. That time I went back in the office, I was escorted back to his office. Mr. Foster, have a seat. Things have changed. <laughs> I got my boat back. Arnold Foster reflecting on when the U.S. military took the albatross away from him. When he finally got it back in 1946, the boat had been painted battleship gray, much to his dismay. He repainted the boat a gleaming white and dove right back into charter fishing. Business grew in tandem with the fleet, and by the mid-1950s, business was booming. After a career in public education, years later, his son Ernie would return to Hatteras and the Albatross fleet, which he runs to this day. In an interview conducted by Barbara Garrity Blake for the Coastal Voices Project, Ernie explains where the Albatross name came from. Hey, well, he quit school after the ninth grade. I think he's about 17 or so. He bounced around. His, uh, my grandfather was a Menhaden uh, captain. So they spent the summers in Hatteras and in the uh, Menhaden season, in either both both of the Southport. And so my father was bouncing around, but sometime in his schooling, some, some teacher read to them, or had them read, the rhyme of the ancient mariner. <laughs> <laughs> and he was struck by the, the description of how graceful the bird was. And also the fact, that this is the one that most people seem to miss, it's unlucky to kill one. Most people, you know, you associate an albatross with bad luck. I don't know. Killing one is bad oh, luck. Yeah, that's right. It's true. 
No, no. He, he, he was looking for something that was would represent what he wanted in a boat, uh, mm -hmm. the lines. And, and he, he never expressed it like that. He was, but he was looking for the, the grace and the beauty and wow. just how pretty she was. Right. And if you ever see the albatross trolling, moving in the ocean at just trolling speed, that there is no boat more graceful than that boat. He, I could just stop. The first one or mm -hmm. all? The first, first one. The other one. ones look nice, but the first one is something different about that boat. And I've been around it all my life, and I, I find myself days when I'm fishing and someone else is running there close to me, I just, just mesmerized. That was Ernie Foster explaining why his father named the boat the Albatross a name steeped in gracefulness of the bird's lines and movements. With her clean lines, her rounded stern, her high flared bow, her open cabin, her red and white outrigger set above her glossy white hull, accented with aquamarine trim and decking, you would think the ocean was made for the albatross. She was built for the water and most especially for fishing. In the poem, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, the dead albatross comes to represent a sense of burden that becomes an obstacle to success. But in Foster's Quay, where the fleet sits today, the albatross is quite literally a living testament to something good, to good fortune. The fleet represents the birth of a new industry on our coast. World records and firsts have been set aboard the albatross fleet. From the first documented billfish catch and release to the first woman north of Florida who caught a blue marlin to a 1968 world record for the largest blue marlin, weighing in at 810 pounds. The fleet helped Cape Hatteras become a blue marlin capital of the world, and it allowed Arnold to build a good life for his family and to send Ernie to college. It provided him with a means to make a living by the sea, something that's increasingly difficult for islanders to do today. But the charter industry is changing. Its culture, it's shifting. Ernie Foster explains here. Who do you think is going to take over the fleet? No one. Really? I think it's going to die. It's the kind of this kind of business is a business that, unless you're in love with it or, or eaten up with it, you, you just can't do it because there's not a lot of money in it. In Hatteras, it started out as a way for watermen to make a living. It has gradually evolved to the point. We're not getting to the point with the charter industry, where the charter industry is where you know some guys are in the charter business, they're in the charter hobby. But in a lot of cases, it's something to do. Uh, you get young men who have significant amount of wealth behind them, and it's something they do in which they are making people happy. They're, they're providing a service. You know, fishing it can be as a passion. You just kind of get eaten up with it. So they're they're providing a service to uh, to the customers. They're doing something they enjoy, and it doesn't cost them so much, which is a very different perspective than, you know, well, I didn't make much, but I made something. At least I fed my family. They, they, their perspective is, well, it didn't cost the uh, didn't cost the family empire but twenty thousand this year. I did good. I mean, that's 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 a, that's a different that's a different world than the world I grew up in, which was it was all watermen. When I was a kid on the water, 
the only voices you heard on the radio were watermen. And now I hear, but I hear some coarse sounders out there. You know, I, I used to, they were there, and we were here, and we were kind of competitors. Now I kind of, man, was a coarse sounder. We get closer, but up in this way, largely guys are not originally from here, and the number, the number of watermen, the sheer number of watermen, and the, and even more so, the percentage of watermen of people on the water that are watermen, has decreased dramatically. In the last how many years? Well, it, it's been it's been decreasing all the time. Over the last twenty years, it has really plummeted. Mm -hmm. and, and to me, a waterman would be at least a second generation uh, guy whose father was on the water and, and he grew up with it. I see it on the water. The most of the guys that I'm fishing with now in the charter fleet are not from here. The guys from someplace else. That was Ernie Foster of Hatteras Island talking about the future of charter fishing in his family business. The future of that industry seems to mirror the future of many traditional industries run by islanders. The albatross looms large in the Foster family story and in the greater story of Hatteras Island. For Arnold Foster, it was the ultimate symbol of hard, earnest work, rugged willfulness and independence. It's hard struggle. It's a lot of long, hard hours, but I, I really enjoy what I've done. I know how we did it. I, and I, in the 50s, I carried parts for $50 a day. Paid me on a boat. The captain made they got $10 a piece. I left $30 in my boat. And I look back on my old books, and I go in sometimes get them out. And it's hard for me to believe that we, we of course, we never had a woman boat. We didn't go on trips. We stayed home. We, I cut corners, and I saved every dollar I could so we could. I wanted Ernie to go to school. I didn't go to school, so I wanted him to have some school. And I didn't ask for a handout from the government. But we salvaged and put him through school four years. It was pretty hard, but we, we managed to get him through school. We, we managed to live and have our home, and I've done what I wanted to do. I'm happy. concludes the first episode in Bitten Grain series with Coastal Voices. The episode was written and produced by Bitten Grain. The interviews were made possible through the Southern Oral History Project and Coastal Voices. The Coastal Voices radio show airs on the third Tuesday of every month from 7 to 7.30 on Hatteras Island Radio. Bitten Grain will be joining Coastal Voices for a meeting in Avon on January 27th from 6 to 8 p.m. at the fire station. We invite you guys to join us. We'd love to see you there. We're going to be talking about our work and how oral histories inform the type of storytelling we do. 
Thank y'all so much for listening tonight. We can't wait to bring you next month's episode. Until then, visit carolinacoastalvoices.wordpress.com and bit and grain, that's B-I-T and grain, G-R-A-I-N.com to learn more about the work we all do. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at bit and grain.